0: Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do more do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and came to Bethsaida, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let me go ahead and pray for us. O God, our Maker, at the dawn of creation, you spoke and light came into being. O Christ, our Redeemer, at the grave of Lazarus, you spoke and the dead came to life. O Holy Spirit, our Guide, at the gathering of Pentecost. You spoke, and fearful disciples received courage to proclaim the gospel. Great God, speak now. Let us hear your word of light and life, and having heard, go forth in the Spirit's power as witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So for those joining from Literary Mainline or from other people who have not been here, uh, right now, Collinswood is going through the story of Elijah, the Elijah the prophet, Um. <clears throat> and, you know, this is more towards the back end of it. So, quick story. So, <clears throat> on August 26, 1910, a woman named Agnes Gunsti bahaki uh, was born in Macedonia. Sorry for the mispronunciation, if you are, are familiar with that language. And at the age of 12, she came to believe the good news of Jesus. And Agnes, because of her faith, she became a nun at the age of 18, and she... Because of her, after she trained to be a nun, she moved to Calcutta, Indian for over a decade, and she taught school there. And see, we know her as Mother Teresa, right? And see, as Mother Teresa was traveling to different cities around Calcutta, she heard this audible voice of God speak to her and told her to go serve the poor. And not only just the poor, but the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. And so, what she did with zero funding, she went and started an open-air school for the poorest children of Calcutta. And if you didn't know the, um, and I'm going to mess up, the uh, nun organization that she was w- w- is with in the Catholic Church, they actually refused to take donations. They b- only believe that God will provide what they need for them. And so, as we know from uh, Mother Teresa, she managed orphanage, uh, she helped hospices, uh, she cared for refugees, the blind, the disabled. Uh, alcoholics, poor and homeless victims, flood victims, epidemics, and famine. And she was finally awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. And see, when we think of 20th century Christian leaders, Mother Teresa is always one of the people that's the most influential. But see, nobody really knew, except for a couple of the priests in the Catholic Church. And after they published all of her letters and writings that Mother Teresa, after she heard and had this great mountaintop experience, she felt incredibly far away from God. And here we have a similar story with Elijah, right? If you have been following along with this, Elijah, he had done incredible things, right? He probably had done some of the biggest miracles we had seen in the Bible, right? He resurrected somebody from the dead. That's an incredible thing. He uh, if you remember, like that um, Israel was worshiping the storm god Baal, and both King Ahab and Queen Jezebel was also. And Elijah had prayed and brought a drought for three years. And then he prayed again he, to end the drought. And then he confronted the prophets of Baal, right, up on the mountain, and he prayed and a fire consumed all of them. And see all of this, at least Elijah was hoping that Israel would repent and turn back to God. And see, Yahweh had shown his power. He had shown that he was the one true God. If you remember, again, I said Baal was the storm God, and the one who actually brought the storm was Yahweh, not Baal. But see, <clears throat> uh, but, and see what Elijah expected was this total repentance. But see, the total opposite happened. No one repents And even what happens is King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, they want to kill him. And what does Elijah do? He decides to run. And he ends up sitting under a broom tree. And so this is where I will kind of differ from what most translations say. Maybe this will show you what I've been learning in Hebrew the past couple of years. Where the ESV says, let me die. But instead, the Hebrew and we don't get this emotion behind it. Elijah is saying, take my life. And he's commanding God. He's not just asking God to do it. He's demanding that it would be done. And we don't get that in the English translation. And see, we have, this is kind of one of the first times too, that we get this picture of Elijah, where Elijah does all these great miracles, but he's more human than this. Again, like I said, Elijah is in utter despair. He was faithful to God. He did what God asked, and all he got back was a no from everyone. He saw no repentance. He even got death threats for doing the right thing. And see, many of us, as we walk, just like Mother Teresa, we have these huge mountaintop experiences in our faith, right? But then we come, and we don't feel God anywhere. And I'm trying not to beat a dead horse here because we have all heard enough about the pandemic, but just think over the past year of all the struggles we've had to go through. We have all these meetings online, we have all these uh you know everyone has to do school online, everyone's doing homeschool now, right? You're not having teachers teach. I mean, you are, but you know what I mean, and then there's other stuff that's going on too, like for if you didn't know, so I'm in my thirties now. Males who are between the ages of 30, you're the highest chance to either drink yourself to death, poison yourself to death with drugs, or commit suicide. Those are the highest groups to do all three of those things. Or even if you look at the present state of the church alone today. Uh, maybe you're not like me who uh, pays attention to other denominations and other, uh, the church in America. But several, along with the Catholic Church, there's some Baptist de- denominations that they are also having, you know, abuse scandals come out, or there people are leaving the church in dro- droves. So, like the Southern Baptist Convention, they reported that almost a million people left their denomination this past year. And the church is also divided on many issues. Something that has affected me and put me in despair is this past summer is I saw and walked with two different couples that we are good friends with go through divorce. And see, it leaves me frustrated, and it leaves me hopeless at times when I see things like this. And it makes me just want to scream, what the heck? What are we supposed to do when we face despair? What are we supposed to do when we lose hope? What does Elijah first do? He prays. Now, it's not a typical prayer, but it is an honest prayer. And second, God reveals to him his word. While we might face while we might not face death threats, we do face rejection. We face failure. We face strained relationships. We do all the right things and none of it turns out how we want it to be, leaving us frustrated and hopeless. While it seems like the world is crashing down, in our despair, God is calling us to draw near and to be intimate with him. But see the problem comes is we ourselves and our horizontal focus and our ungratefulness ruin our intimacy with God. So let me break those three things down for us. See, our intimacy is ruined because of ourselves. See, sin entered one man, plaguing us from having a deep, intimate relationship with our Creator. As Isaiah 59 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. See, sin separates us because God is a holy God. And because of that, we are unable to hear and understand God. And see, a person who is not regenerated is not able to do those things or understand God. And by regenerated, I mean that when you come to faith, and if you read John 3, you're given a new birth and a new creation, which makes you unable to hear and understand his word. So your heart changes and is able to understand and know the things that God knows and desires for you. The, to them, it seems ridiculous. If you think about people who aren't in Christ, right? The Bible seems foolish. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. And that's why we see Ahab and Jezebel threatening Elijah's life. What Elijah is doing seems crazy to them. And in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they have folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And if you don't know who J.I. Packer is, he is a theologian from the 20th and 21st century, and he just passed away this past year, and he puts it like this when we're regenerated. The work of the Spirit in imparting his knowledge is called illumination, or an enlightening. It is not a giving of new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical te- text as heard and read and as explained by teachers and writers. And think about any relationship you have. See, we cannot know someone deep well when we ruin it. Like, think about the person you have the closest relationship with you, with if you don't know them, do you really have a relationship with them? The next thing we do that ruins our intimacy is we focus too much on the horizontal. And see, by the horizontal, what I mean is we focus too much on the things that are happening around us, on the people, on the culture, or on the life situations. And see, we focus, or we often focus much more on what's happening around us than what God is doing around us. Instead of letting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shape us, we let culture shape us. Last summer, at our old church back in Ohio, one of the leaders was giving teachings on faith and science. And because no one was meeting in person, we're able to do it on Zoom, right? That was one of the good things that happened during the pandemic. We were able to see people on Zoom. Uh, and we were able to invite friends who were atheist or agnostic to listen to these talks. And my wife and I would usually try to have a conversation with them afterwards. We would either call or text. And see, the funny thing is, with each atheist or agnostic I had a conversation with afterwards, it was never about the trouble of science and the church they had trouble with. What had turned them away from the church was how Christians had treated them. It was the fact that Christians cared more about how people were behaving about sh- than they were sharing the grace, mercy, and love of Christ. And let me say, living a good and righteous life is always worthy. But it's not worthy if the outpouring of the death and resurrection of Jesus and his grace is not shared with those people. And maybe you are here and you're an atheist, or maybe you're listening online today, an agnostic. And Maybe the church has hurt people. Yes, it has. It definitely has. And see, the problem is the church is full of broken people who are all desperately in need in the grace of God every day. And if you are a faith seeker, if you are agnostic, if you are an atheist, I challenge you with this. Maybe the cross is so counterculture to you that maybe you're more afraid of what it does to you or what Jesus will ask of you if it's true that you just want to blame other people for why you refuse to come to Christ. And finally, our intimacy is ruined because of our ungratefulness. Of, at my time at Westminster, we have spent a ton of time talking about this ungratefulness. See, when you read back to chapter 7 and 18, you never read anywhere where Elijah is thanking God for the miracles he did. What you do read is him incredibly frustrated and hopeless with what didn't happen with Israel. See, Elijah is so focused on what is happening to him that he forgets the good things and the miracles God has done. And so in in seminary, we focus a lot on Romans 1. Uh, If you are bored and you need any summer reading, uh, I challenge you to look up Van Til, and he talks about this a lot. I won't go into depth about that. But in Romans 1, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And see, when you read Romans 1, that's the only thing Paul talks about about, well, later he does talk about, but the first thing that he talks about is what causes people to sin or not be right with God is their ungratefulness. Or think of the story of the prodigal son, right? If you think about the older brother, right, he storms out of the party, he doesn't want to join it, and he's angry. And what is he focusing on? He's focusing on the fact that he didn't get what he wants. And see, it's all because he is unable to be grateful for the abundance that he already had that he wasn't able to enjoy the party. See, every good thing in your life is a gift from God. When we decide to be ungrateful, we forget about God's goodness and his gracious blessings in our lives. See John 1 says God gives blessings upon blessings. And what he it just keeps it means he just not only does he die on the cross for you but he continues to bless you in your life. He doesn't just stop there. It just outpours and overflows upon you. So if you think about this daily, right? What are you thanking God for daily? If you think about current situations, right? The vaccine is a blessing. And I'm not going to make a statement here whether you should get it or not, but it's, it is a blessing. It is saving lives. And it's not that he physically came down and created the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, but there's all these things that God did to create people and their minds and the resources available for people to make them. Or in the church context, context, think about the relationships and the fellowships you have here, Right? They're just blessings upon you that God has given you. And see, when we focus on the things which we do not have, we become ungrateful. And when we are ungrateful, we lose hope. But see, in Elijah's ungratefulness, his focus on himself in the horizon, he runs, on the horizontal, he runs. And see, if you uh, were to map this out where he runs... He runs about 200 miles, which is actually about from this church building, and I looked it up, to Virginia Beach. And he falls and lies under a broom tree. And see, a broom tree is found in the Judean desert. And throughout the Bible, the broom tree is a symbol of despair. In Psalm 120, the psalmist connects a broom tree to his distress, his mourning, and punishment. In Job, he talks about a broom tree of being a place of desolation, ruin, and abandonment. And see, the broom tree is actually where Hagar and Ishmael run out of food and water. And just like Elisha, or sorry, Elijah, she placed Ishmael and sat down under the tree, and she cries out to God, because they're going to die too. And see, in the Mosaic Law... It is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And see, as the disciples watched Christ die on the cross, they were filled with despair and hopelessness. The person who they had followed for three years was coming to his end, and they watched him. All they had done and all they had sacrificed, they thought, was for nothing. They had the expectation the coming Messiah would rid the shackles which Rome had put on Israel at that time. See, they thought a political revolution was coming, and I'm sure as they watched Jesus hang on that tree, they were thinking of De- Deuteronomy. See, most Israelites at that time had all the scriptures memorized. All they had thought was they thought was Jesus represented a curse as he hung. And under our broom tree, there is despair, hopelessness, mourning, death. As Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being the curse for us. He took on the curse so that we are redeemed from the curse by the life, death, resurrection, and death of Jesus. As we sit under our broom tree, it no longer needs to be a place of despair, hopelessness, and death. But it becomes a place where we may have love, joy, hope, and life. Because Jesus has taken on the curse for us while he was on his broom tree. This is what many people will call the great reversal, where God takes something which has no hope and turns it into something that is the ultimate hope for us. Only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are we able to have a deep and intimate relationship with God. It is only through the blood of Christ you're able to be with God. Some people may say here that other religions offer an intimate relationship with God, too. And why not practice any of them? But see, the problem with other religions like Islam or Buddhism, they're all about what must I do to be closer to God. See, they expect you to get under or see, get out from the broom tree. Where in Christianity, the exact opposite has happened. It is what God has done that draws you closer. See, it's the God who comes to you under the broom tree and takes you from the broom tree and does the work for you. The same can be said for us who are already believers. If we focus too much on what I am supposed to do, and not enough time on what Christ did for us, we lose our intimacy. And I'm going to go ahead and talk, what does this mean for us, what God did on the broom tree for us? And the first thing I want to talk about is, we don't give enough credit where credit is due. See, Elijah was so focused on the nation of and individuals of Israel not repenting that he was not giving the credit for what God had performed. See, even though we do not see the incredible miracles of God bringing fire upon our enemies, God gives and does things in abundance for us. <clears throat> and a quick story about this. Uh, so my wife, she is from uh, the mainline area. I'm not. And my in-laws are some of the kindest people and they will serve almost everything. Everyone, if you were walking down this road right here and you didn't have any clothes and you didn't have food to eat, they would not only give you a shirt and food, they would probably allow you to stay at their house as long as you needed to. And see, they have a deep calling to serve those in need, and they have even adopted five kids uh, from Philadelphia. And when I engaged, was engaged to my wife, and when we were first married, an Egyptian family who had lost their home lived in their basement. Multiple other families have lived with them, and many kids' friends who were not in great situations came and lived with them at one time or another to be in a safe place. And see, when they talk about it, all they talk about is the blessings and how grateful they are for what God has given them. And they never take any credit for themselves. They always give credit for what God has done for them. And it's kind of funny, because I'll hear family members And friends say to them, why don't you just take more credit for yourselves? Or, I wish you would just take more credit for yourselves. And a lot of times, we want to give ourselves credit for things we do. It's easy to look at the things you have worked hard to get to think that they're yours. And many times we think, I deserve X because I did Y. When in reality, no matter how hard you worked, God has graciously given it to you. And I ask, are you living a sacrificial life in that all you can do is praise and thank God for what he did with you? I think the second thing we see in this is we see an incredibly honest prayer. If you remember how I talked back where Elijah yells out, take my life. See, he's deeply honest when he, takes, when he cries out to God. Think about this with any relationship you, ha- you have. You cannot have a deep, intimate relationship with anyone if you're not having honest conversations. It will not go beyond surface level if it's not honest. And the same thing about God is true. If you read the different actions with people in the Old Testament with God, whether it's Moses or Abraham or any of the psalmists, they're all honest prayers, right? And we see this too when Jesus tells the parable in Luke 18. He says... The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you for that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, the honest, humble prayer brings us humbly close to God. And we do not have to fear to be rejected in our honest prayer. Because it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, find grace, to help in the time of need. So go to God in confidence to share your honest prayers with Him, so you can receive mercy and grace. And if you are not sure what to say, do not fear, because the Holy Spirit will speak for you. And Eugene Peterson says this about honest prayer. He was a pastor in the 20th century. He says, what the Psalms are teaching us is that all true prayer pursued far enough will become praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experience it traverses, will become praise. It does not always get there quickly. It does not always get there easily. In fact, the trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. This is not to say that other kinds of prayer are inferior to praise, but that all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Don't rush it. Don't push it. It, makes, it may take years. It may take decades. But certain prayers arrive at the hallelujahs of Psalm 150. Not every prayer is capped off with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the Psalms are a true guide, are not. But prayer is always reaching toward praise. And if pursued far enough, will arrive there. And finally, the final application. When you read the end of this scripture, in verses 5 through 8, it says, Behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And you look, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for your journey is too great. And see, God, in Elijah's despair, In his hopelessness, God came down and met his physical needs. He gave him food and water, which he needed. See, the loving God is deeply connected to loving others. He not only wants our spiritual needs met, he wants our physical needs. And see, we need to come to our neighbors in the same way. See, even though that they may be under a broom tree, and we can offer them spiritual help, we're all supposed to come and meet their physical needs too. While we are to share the gospel with our neighbors, we're also called to meet and serve them too. Many times, if we read Jesus, he not only tells people to repent from their sin, but he also heals them, feeds them, and makes the blind see. And Milton Vincent puts it like this. He's a pastor in California Perhaps a poverty-stricken person will be blessed and changed as a result of some kindness I show them. If so, God be praised for his grace through me. But if the person walks away unchanged by my kindness, then I still rejoice over the opportunity to love as God loves. Perhaps the person will repent in time, but for now my heart is chastened and made wiser by the tangible depiction of what I myself have done to God on numerous occasions." The Gospel reminds me daily of the spiritual poverty into which I was born, but also the staggering generosity of Christ towards me. Such reminders instill in me both a felt connection to the poor and a desire to show them the same generosity that has been lavished upon me. When ministering with the poor, these motivations, I not only preach to them through the Word, indeed, but I reenact the Gospel to my own benefit as well. And see, more than likely, God will not be sending us angels when we are in need, but he will send his church. He will send us to go live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus. And one way we can do this is serving through small things, right? We can serve those who are in need as we also preach the gospel. And see, Christ does not command us to perform any miracles, but just gives us a simple command to go and serve. As I close, remember our greatest witness to this world will always be the hope we have in Christ, no matter the sufferings or the issues or the hopelessness or despair, because we, as we sit under the broom tree, there is always a God who is ever-present with us under the broom tree so that we may always have hope. Thanks be to God. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after-party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon, live, speak, and serve at you later.